Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. You can download the app in the App Store or on Google Play for under $4, and you get over 200 meditations from 30 expert teachers. Such a small investment to sleep better, feel less anxious, and to be more focused and productive. And your one-time purchase of the app helps to keep our podcast going. Give it a try. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. We love having you with us. I'm so excited to have Dr. Anne Marie Albano on our podcast today. Dr. Albano has devoted her career to the study and treatment of anxiety and mood disorders in children, adolescents, and young adults. She's a clinical psychologist, board certified in child and adolescent psychology, a professor of medical psychology, and director of the Columbia University Clinic for Anxiety and Related Disorders. She's also the author of the book, You and Your Anxious Child. Anxiety is a topic that I've been curious about for a long time. We have so many people using our Meditation Studio app that say it's helped them with their anxiety challenges, and I've long wondered why the incidence of anxiety is on the rise, what triggers it, and how do we know when it's normal and when it becomes a disorder? Dr. Albano is chock full of wisdom on this important topic and, more importantly, She shares ideas and coping skills for how we can deal with our own and others' anxiety. It's truly one of the most important and thought-provoking interviews we've done. Now, here's Dr. Albano. Dr. Albano, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I am so curious about anxiety And this is your expertise. And so I have a lot of questions that I want to ask you. And the first one really is, would you define anxiety for our audience? Well, everyone should be familiar with anxiety to some extent. Anxiety is that, uh uh-oh, feeling that you get if you, for instance, are crossing the street and you hear a car horn. Or it is the nudge in your mind the what do I need to do and what if I don't get my bills paid or if I don't study enough, you get a little bit of excitability and maybe a little bit of worry. Anxiety is a natural, normal emotion that motivates us to do things that protect us. So look both ways crossing streets or to take care of things so that we can have, you know, live our lives with a little disruption And it is actually physiologically based. So there's two types of anxiety, the fear reaction, the fight or flight reaction, which is based in a certain part of our brain. And then the worry reaction about worry about the future and things that happen in the future that's based in the thinking centers, the cortex of our brain. So anxiety is a normal, natural emotion that everybody experiences more or less through the course of the day, according to what's going on. So what's the difference when someone says to you, I feel anxiety before I'm public speaking versus when it really becomes a problem? In your book, you lay out a number of different sort of types like separation, generalized, social disorder, um, anxiety disorder. 
when does it become a problem for someone? So, and that is really the key. That's what people come in uh, at all ages, parents bringing in their children or adults coming in, wondering if the anxiety they experience is normal or is it what we call a clinical disorder. And the thing we have to look at is number one, does your anxiety or your child's anxiety result in wanting to avoid or escape everyday situations and challenging situations that otherwise you should be expected to deal with? And so does it wind up that you're so anxious about giving public speaking that you cancel talks or you take a position specifically that doesn't put you in the public eye? In children, we see kids who it's not just about, I'm nervous about the oral report, and they may sweat and blush during the oral report. They actually are having meltdowns, crying, tears. They hide. They don't want to go to school. That's avoidance. So that's one thing we look at. The second thing is how anxious the person gets. Is the distress from the anxiety so overwhelming that you are getting tears? And then we look at does anxiety interfere with your functioning? That is, is it getting so bad that you're not doing things you should? So for a child, it puts them behind in school or it gets in the way of making and keeping friendships. It causes them to be greatly upset through taking care of themselves. Uh, they can't make decisions. With adults, it gets in the way of work, and you can't get your work done. And then the final thing is duration. Does the anxiety last longer than what is expected for something new or a new adjustment to a new situation, a change in your routine, a change in life? Does it go on for weeks and months? And depending on the anxiety disorder, there's lengths of time that we look at that People should be able to accommodate to the anxiety and move on. So the four areas, do you avoid? Does it cause distress? Does it interfere with your functioning? And is the duration something that anxiety is sticking with you? You're not learning how to master it. And do you have any thoughts on how this begins? I know you work a lot with young children and adolescents, um, and I know you've also created programs for adults, but... When you see this in young children, is there anything that has triggered it? Or do you often see that maybe a parent has some anxious behaviors? What are some of the things that are causing anxiety? Let's start with in young children. So all of the above and maybe sometimes none of the above. <laughs> There's been a lot of research that shows some key risk factors for a young child and children developing anxiety disorders. And one of the first things we look at is that there may well be a family history of anxiety. So there, for some people, it's a genetic basis um, that there's risk that is conferred because a parent and grandparents, first degree relatives may have had anxiety, depression, or other mental health problems that put, uh, that confer a risk. Now, genetics by themselves is not the only thing. As the infant is developing, even prenatally, but then when they are born, what's the infant's personality, what we call temperament? Infants and young children who tend to be clinging, who tend uh, not to explore the environment, they're fearful, uh, they tend to get emotional and uh, have difficulty with uh, healthy, normal separations, even so much as letting a parent be in one room while they're in another. 
the inhibited temperament is a risk factor for anxiety. So these are two biological factors, genes and temperament. And then we have to look at the early environment. And this is where if parents are anxious, they could convey some modeling. That is, if they act in anxious ways, they're always overprotecting, they are scared, and they don't, let's say, leave the house often, they express worry, children may pick up some of that. So modeling and parenting, um, types of parenting, especially the overprotective parent, can also contribute to anxiety. And we also have to look at then just many other kinds of factors in the environment, Are there experiences with traumatic events, with disruption in the house, for example, if there's discord between the parents and anger? Is there death or a loss? Various things like that in the early environment can also put children at risk. Do you ever see a shift where you might not see any kind of family history or temperamental issues and then all of a sudden around, you know, maybe ages of 8 to 15, all of a sudden, you start seeing some anxious behaviors in children? So this is a great question, because what then happens as children are aging out of the early childhood into preschool and then early school ages is, of course, their cognitive abilities, their ability to think, to interpret what's going on around them, to make their own minds up and imagine how scenarios could go, this all starts to come into play. And so if a child starts down a path of misinterpreting the environment as hostile, negative, frightening, they may develop a cognitive style that is more anxious um, and, and sort of everything is a risk to them and uh, a fear that they won't be able to handle it. We also see as children then, they could come from, as you're saying, very stable, warm um, uh, homes where you don't have any kind of problems, but as they're heading into school, now the parents don't have as much control over what's going on. So depending upon how peers are, what's going on in the larger community, uh, there, there are other kinds of things that come into play in terms of the child's experience in getting to know the world, getting to know other people, Um, academics uh, and what's going on in in their uh, ability to learn and work, all these kinds of things can um, impact upon whether anxiety then starts manifesting through childhood and into adolescence. You talk a little bit in your book about the science of what's going on or, or what's happening in the brain. And this sort of gets us into this methodology that is your expertise, cognitive behavior therapy. Can you talk a little bit about the science of what is happening in your brain and then explain to us what cognitive behavioral therapy is and how that starts to intercept the anxious patterns? Sure. So if we think back to what I said, there's sort of two kinds of anxiety that are hardwired in our brains and nervous systems. And if you think about your brain, Way down in the deepest part of your brain is a little almond-shaped region that's called the amygdala. This is in the oldest part of our brains, and this amygdala and is where the fight-or-flight response is housed. And that is, without a person's awareness, 
if something's going on that may be harmful to them, such as they're crossing a street, as I said, and you hear a car horn, or you're walking down a street and you have the all of a sudden sensation someone's behind you, the fight or flight response is actually using your other senses, all your senses and awareness, and it kicks in to help you fight what might be out there or flee or sometimes freeze, fight, flight, or freeze. So it is an immediate reaction that releases certain kinds of hormones, adrenaline being um, the major one, and gets you ready to deal with an immediate threat. Now that's, that's just the fight or flight response is normal. So let's leave it at that, it's normal. And then there's a second part of your brain, what's called the prefrontal cortex. And if you just put your hand over your forehead, you've got your hand over the prefrontal cortex. It's the, this part of the brain evolved later um, as man evolved and started using tools and, uh, and so forth. And this is where you think. It's the logical and illogical section of the brain that like reasons, tells you what to do, it evaluates situations. So this is where worry about the future is housed. And so what if I don't pay my bills on time? What if I don't see the doctor? And ah, who needs to go to the doctor? I'll go in, a, you know, in 10 years. You know, it's the what if section of the brain. And that's focused on the future. Now, this again is normal uh, because we need enough anxiety to look out for our immediate selves that we're safe, but then also take care of our needs for the longer term. When anxiety becomes problematic, either the fight or flight or worry keeps going and is set off at times when you don't need it. And this arises learning how to misinterpret the environment and also misinterpret your own feelings. So individuals, for example, who have panic disorder they think that when their heart races a little, if they feel a little bit lightheaded, they kick off their fight or flight response automatically and a panic attack happens because they're afraid of those sensations. They're not reasoning in time to prevent that fight or flight reaction with saying, maybe my heart's racing because I just did aerobics. Or maybe I'm feeling a little lightheaded because I didn't eat enough this morning. I should get something to eat. You see, so there are clinical manifestations of what are normal responses. And when it comes to worry, individuals, what if, what if, what if, and especially with children, we hear, but mom, if we go on vacation, what if there's not a hospital around and one of you gets sick? And, and then what if you get, have to go to the hospital and we're left alone? And what if we won't know what to do? Children with generalized anxiety and adults worry so much they actually develop physical sensations um, and symptoms that are tension, irritability, headaches, stomach aches, because they're wrapped in worry about everything and anything that can go wrong and believe they can't do anything to help themselves. So is anxiety sometimes misdiagnosed? Do you ever see someone that has some kind of a condition that you have to track back to their anxiety? That's a good question. And the answer to that is, first of all, oftentimes pediatricians and also just general practitioners will recognize anxiety in individuals because they're coming in first and foremost because of the physical sensation. And so we actually did some studies uh, where we found that children who are in pediatric cardiology clinics 
who have what's called non-cardiac chest pain. That is, they're feeling chest pain, but all tests are normal. What actually has happened is these are undiagnosed anxiety disorders, that the focus was on the medical potential medical situation and not on the fact that the child was experiencing panic-like sensations. And so a lot of times the, the doorway into getting help comes from pediatrics or primary care and then secondarily from schools when it comes to children because teachers notice the children who are the worry warts in the classroom or the kids who are missing a lot of school and they call attention to the parents, you know, please, you know, you should have your child evaluated because they're asking too many questions, they're not able to be reassured, they're worrying about things they don't need to, and sometimes they think there's a learning disability or something when anxiety is at play. Well, you also talked about comorbidity, where some children have anxiety plus ADHD, plus depression or sensory processing issues. Is, is that, that must make it even harder to diagnose. Well, this is, this is one of the things um, that's been very well characterized and studied is what starts first in terms of diagnoses and how do they run through childhood and adolescence. And my very good colleague, Dr. Kathleen Marikangas, an epidemiologist at the National Institutes of Mental Health, she led a, the largest study of adolescence in this country and from her data and then from others that have, uh, exist, it shows anxiety disorders start by ages four or five. And they build over time the highest level of prevalence. Then you have the behavior disorders starting six or seven. And that would be ADHD or oppositional defiant. And why those are sort of not starting but recognized later is because teachers are recognizing these conditions. Depression comes on later in adolescence, as does substance abuse. So these tend to be the disorders of first onset, and they're the gateway disorders, the anxiety disorders, too, especially depression and substance use. The thing of it is, we haven't done well as a country in treating anxiety. As much as about 24% of youth have anxiety disorders, only maybe about 7 to 10% actually get treatment of those 24%. So they don't get treated. More often, the children are referred or adults are referred for treatment for the issues around the anxiety, the fighting and, and uh, relationships, but not the anxiety itself. Then I also saw in your book that you refer to a body you know, relaxation and belly breathing. And these are very much similar to some of the techniques that we use in meditation for anxiety. What are some of the techniques that you think can help us treat anxiety? And at what level does our anxiety have to be at in order to be treated by cognitive behavioral therapy, meditation, and mindfulness techniques versus medication? Well, this is the great marriage of cognitive behavior therapy and mindfulness and Buddhist techniques, because we have been doing mindfulness, meditation, uh, relaxation all the way through. We, it's only been really, I think, in about the last 25 years or 20 years that these, these fields have come together. What cognitive behavior therapy does is educates the individual about the nature of anxiety, helps them to identify what prompts their anxiety. And through that, we're looking at how are you viewing the world? How do you coach yourself? What's your inner self-talk? 
in this experience that you're having with whatever this is that might frighten you, giving a talk, approaching a dog, touching something that feels kind of gooey, whatever it might be. So number one is how are you talking to yourself? But most importantly, I think along with that is how then do you stay in the moment, maintain a sense of self and of centeredness, right? And keep those sensations of the fight or flight response um, or of worry from going out of control. So this is where the somatic management techniques initially in the anxiety disorders were pretty much deep diaphragmatic breathing and progressive muscle relaxation. Until the 90s when more of the mindfulness approaches came in, and now we do all kinds of mindfulness centering techniques, um, body scan and in the moment, wise mind work, you name it. We bring this all in. And then we put these together. We teach these skills along with the cognitive work and then help the person enter those situations that they have been avoiding or dealing with under duress and help them be very mindful, composed, and work through the situation to problem solve and manage it as opposed, again, to trying to avoid or escape or falling apart in it. I would think those techniques would work well with disciplined adults. When you're working with young children, is it hard to get them to adopt some of the practices that you're recommending? No and yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful thing about children and the somatic management techniques, kids love to play and you really can be playful in this way in teaching them uh, various mindfulness and relaxation skills. So Phil Kendall, who is like the father of treatment of childhood anxiety, he came up with Robot and Ragdoll um, and where we do work with the kids walking like a robot. What are you as a robot? And this is anxiety makes you into a robot and then being a rag doll. So falling into being a rag doll. So it, you have to be very playful. You have to have fun with that. And that helps us lead it, lead the children into other ways of how can we bring rag doll into bedtime routine? How can we bring rag doll into the classroom when we need to take a test so that we have that really cool, I'm so relaxed feeling at any given time? And so kids who are um, pretty um, mild to moderate, let's say, with anxiety and they're able to follow and they're engaged with the therapist and a therapist who is creative, very good at engaging kids and meeting them in the ways that they want to be met. Sometimes we'll invoke their favorite superheroes or action figures or Disney princess, you know, for helping us to move along some of these somatic management techniques. Um, but when you have, as you identified a little bit ago, more comorbidity, if there's also depression or other issues that are at play, sometimes the medication in combination with cognitive behavior therapy is important. And our studies have shown that the combination of the two, especially for the kids who are moderate to severe, and, and especially for kids who are really missing out on school and, and missing out on their lives and development, medication, at, the, at least in the short term, and when I say short term, I mean a year or so, uh, maybe the thing that's beneficial to help them move along and then access and use these techniques that we know can be helpful to them. When you were saying that with the cognitive behavioral therapy, that you are teaching the children to coach themselves, it reminds me a lot of how we think about mindfulness when we 
pause or we take a breath before we react to something and we know that we have a choice in how we can respond. But it also made me think about self-compassion practices. Do you do a lot with self-compassion? Do you teach that as a concept and as a practice? Well, I have seen other colleagues of mine who are acceptance and commitment therapy folks um, well, who will be explicit in, in talking about self-compassion. We're working with kids in saying, forgiving yourself. We can have oops moments. And what we have to do is play through and forgive ourselves for you know, dropping the food tray in the cafeteria or um, calling someone by the wrong name. These are the kinds of things that children with anxiety disorders, um, they crumble when stuff like that happens that you know is an everyday thing. So the self-compassion is allowing ourselves to make mistakes. And a big part of CBT is having kids enter situations and not having the situation go well. And I think in the, um, in the book, I wrote about a young man with social anxiety, a 16-year-old who had never been on a date. And uh, long story short, as he was asked to the prom, we rehearsed the prom before he went. And we rehearsed he and his date in every way it could happen. Them having a good time, but also he messing up in various ways, she leaving him and so on. And ultimately, when he went to the prom, the girl took off with someone else. Ooh. <laughs> now, if we hadn't practiced that things can go, you have control over yourself, but not others. or other, And you don't really have a lot of control in every situation, but you do have control over yourself. And you can forgive yourself if you've messed up. And you can also move on, not hold any you know big negative emotions, but what can you do in a situation to learn from it, to profit from it? And so in that particular situation, yeah, that young man went and asked other girls to dance, something he might not have done before, and he actually had a good time. That is such a great example because it's such an important lesson for adults, too, because you must see a lot of adults who mess up, you know, fail at something, beat themselves up over and over, have an internal negative critic. And I mean, those tools that you were teaching the 16-year-old are the same tools that we need as we, you know, as we move into adulthood. Well, you're right. You're so right on that. And so, you know, the two key things I see that run throughout the anxiety disorders across the ages from three to 93 is not having the skills to self-soothe and self-center. And secondly, being very, very self-critical and critical um, of the ability to handle the world. Mm. And so we have to, you know, what we have to do is put these tools in place where people learn how to comfort themselves and to deal with varying states, boredom, sadness, anger, anxiety, to be able to manage that. But then the other thing too is how to problem solve in your mind without being your worst critical judge. It's just such an important tool. And again, it's so much of what we learn in, in mindfulness training. And it's great to see these parallels. And it's great to see young people learning about this so that when they go into adulthood, they already have the tools that they need. Yes. And, and one of the things we do too, is we bring families together. The earlier the, the anxiety starts with the child, it doesn't just work on the child. It changes the way the parent parents. Parents don't want to see their children suffering. So they do tend to step in and comfort and reassure and protect. And then they take over situations they think will be upsetting to their child. 
And that, you know, is it's on the one hand, in the immediate sense, it works out over the long term, it may get in the way. And we've seen a lot of studies show it gets in the way of the child learning how to manage. So what we do is what we call the transfer of control. We teach the child these somatic management techniques, self-centering. We teach them the cognitive work, and then they teach their parents. We have to address with the parents separately how they are reacting to their child's anxiety because parents sometimes feel responsible, they blame themselves, and they worry so much about what the anxiety or what they're not stepping in might do to their child. So we have to work with that too and help the parents to have wise mind and calm mind and be centered and and see things in the moment, but also over the longer term uh, for the benefits of struggling sometimes with situations that aren't um, necessarily the best of situations, but they can be good learning experiences. I can also see that it could be very frustrating for a parent. And in that sense, it might escalate conflict in the home, where if a parent understands that a child is not able to control certain behaviors, maybe they won't become so frustrated in that moment. So I imagine there's a lot of kind of teaching and informing that you do with parents. We have to get a lot of times if it's a two-parent home or if there's extended family, we have multi-generational families, we have to get all the adults in the house on the same page because sometimes you have a parent who may be more forgiving and maybe more reassuring Whereas another uh, parent is more of the school of hard knocks and stop babying. So we have to help everybody to get on the same page and doing that by focusing them on what actually do they want. And when we start working there, we find everybody wants this child to do well, to manage things, to, to mature and grow in their experiences in a way that is adaptive. And once we can share, get everyone to share on that, then we can help them to see that there's a set of skills and a way of relating to the child and teaching the child that is going to get them to those ends. And they will be able to fly more independently on their own and the parents can step back. Yeah. And in the book, you list a few things about uh, how to sort of manage the home when you have a child with anxiety, like try to create a home that is an anxiety-free zone, you know, be a problem solver, learn to soothe yourself. So you're showing a behavior that's more positive for your children. You also say something about being a problem solver. Um, are, are there some tips that you think are really important for how to manage the home? What I like to see, especially for the younger children, but we even need this with our adolescents, is that there's some routines and that the children see, first and foremost from their parents, that parents can speak aloud their problem-solving steps that they're taking for things that the kids can understand. And I think I use the example maybe, dad is running late from work. He should have been home a half hour ago. Hmm, this worries me some. But wait a minute, he must be stuck in traffic or, oh, maybe he's picking something up. We'll just keep dinner warm until he gets here. You see, if you and we call this self-instructional training where you're teaching yourself to stay calm, but you're also saying it aloud so the child sees the process of working through how to reason with myself. We teach parents and kids to have relaxation time for the family, to have some centering time, 
nothing is better than doing this on, you know, a Saturday morning before everybody runs out to sports and uh, various things that they're doing. And so family relaxation practices and family mindfulness practices are excellent. And then we use other kinds of techniques and strategies, such as the problem-solving log, where people go around, they, they might write uh, something that, they cha- that challenged them, how they handled it, and they have some time uh, during their family time where they read aloud, you know, what and how they handled it, and then everybody can weigh in and give high fives on those things or talk about how to do it a little differently. Yeah. And, you know, different strategies like that, but I think consistency and I think parents being open without judging their children and ready to help guide them towards solutions as opposed to giving them solutions is very key. And do you think you practice in New York City, which is a very frenetic culture? Um, <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you find that it's, it's worse in a city like New York and a sort of unrelated but maybe related question Do you find that social media and the amount of television that kids are watching are causing higher levels of anxiety because of, of, well, the obvious things that they're seeing on social media or on some of the programs that they're watching? Yeah. So in answer to the first question, I I practiced in Albany and Louisville, Kentucky and Richmond, Virginia. (laughs) So the only thing here, I mean, I think the anxieties are... Uh, sometimes there are some that are bound by the place. In Kentucky, it was tornado, tornado, tornado. Everybody had tornado right. So the thing that New York gives me actually is a lot of um, ways of taking children and also adults around to expose them to the things they're afraid of. P- you know, different people, um, different types of transportation, bugs, <laughs> you name it. So New York is a great exposure uh, center. Getting to what uh, you're talking about with the media, though, again, my my former uh, student and and a wonderful psychologist and professor, John Comer, he studied uh, parents' reactions to news about terrorism and the way that they process that and express that and what that does to their children, whether the children's anxiety is heightened by uh, the way parents uh, look at and respond to television news. And so, you know, so when we talk about media, there's many, many different types of media we know from the internet to Snapchats to print and then to news and film, you name it. And so sure enough, if the parents are reasoned, they're staying calm or, you know, staying reasonably calm while situations are unfolding, and they're giving rational uh, information that's age appropriate to the child and in a way that supports we're here, we're we're working on this together and we're gonna, this is what we're gonna do to be safe. The children actually do much better and they don't present as much anxiety. So we have to watch. I do think that parents should monitor children's use of media and especially the internet. There's a lot of misinformation. And what happens when you're anxious The anxious mind selects out, we call it selective attention. It selects the information that heightens your anxiety. 
So when I did live in Louisville, Kentucky, kids afraid of tornadoes were constantly looking for information on tornadoes. And what are they looking for? The disasters surrounding tornadoes, not where there was tornadoes or, the, or they're able to predict tornadoes or that people are able to be warned and get out. They were just selectively following uh, information about what could go wrong. So parents have to watch and keep an open line of communication. Discuss with the kids. What do you know about X that's happening right now? What have you heard? What do you think about that? Let's talk about how to manage in this situation. That's very helpful to kids. And then also limiting their time of media exposure, especially if they're young, to events that are happening in the here and now. Yeah, especially if they don't know how to interpret them. And you were talking about that a little bit earlier. Yeah, and if I could just say one thing, that doesn't mean don't expose your kids to talking. Uh, parents who may be so over-controlled they don't want their children to know about 9-11 and what happened there, they're going to find out from their peers. It's going to come up during the course of school, various things that are happening now or happened in the past. So you, you want to be able to discuss things with children when they're of the right age to do so and in a way that helps them to understand how safe they are and secure and what people are doing to help, you know, to keep things safe, not to play into the, you know, the fear um, and heightened anxiety around these things. Well, Dr. Albano, this has been so insightful and in Formative and you're amazing. Thank you so much for this richness of information. I, I'm just, I've been so curious about all of this. Um, and since I read your book, and it's just unbelievable to me how big an, a challenge anxiety is. And these are such great tools for people. I can't thank you enough because the more we could get the message out, and especially the message about mindfulness, meditation, and somatic management, I think will be a calmer country for it. Thank you again. Thanks so much to Dr. Albano for all her insights and wisdom on this very complicated topic. You can find her book, You and Your Anxious Child, at booksellers everywhere. Once again, if you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store or on Google Play. We'll see you next week.